0: To start, I shall get started. Uh, now, I'd like to start by reading you Dad's favourite poem. Uh, this uh, poem has been hanging on our bathroom wall since I can remember. Uh, is a poem that Dad uh, used to live his life by. They are very good words, and I also try to live my life by these words. Uh, so here we go. This is the desiderata. Go placidly amid the noise and haste. And remember what peace there may be in silence. Silence. As far as possible and without surrender, be on good terms with all persons. Speak your truth quietly and clearly and listen to others, even the dull and the ignorant have their story. Avoid loud and aggressive persons, they are vexations to the spirit. If you compare yourself with others, you may become vain and bitter. For always there are greater and lesser persons than yourself. Enjoy your achievements, as well as your plans. Keep interested in your own career, however humble. It is a real possession in the changing fortunes of time. Exercise caution in your business affairs, for the world is full of trickery. But let this not blind you to what virtue there is. Many persons strive for high high ideals, and everywhere life is full of heroism. Be yourself, especially do not feign affection. Neither be cynical about love, for in the face of all aridity and disenchantment, it is as perennial as the grass. Take kindly to the council of years, gracefully surrendering the things of youth. Nurture the strength of spirit to shield you in sudden misfortune, but do not distress yourself with imaginings. Many fears are born of fatigue and loneliness, and beyond a wholesome discipline, be gentle with yourself. You are a child of the universe no less than the trees and the stars. You have a right to be here, and whether or not it is clear to you, no doubt the universe is unfolding as it should. Therefore, be at peace with God, whatever you conceive him to be, and whatever your labours and aspirations in the noisy confusion of life, keep peace with your soul. With all its sham, drudgery, and broken dreams, it is still a beautiful world. Be cheerful, strive to be happy. Thank you. On a lighter note, I'd like to read you this. I'm going to stand over here actually, I'm not being blinded so much. Um, Now this is a little ditty that Dad himself wrote. Um, When he retired and moved down to uh, New Zealand, uh, he opened a marine shop with Mr. Phil Kerr and uh, and a couple of others. And um, I think business must have been a little bit slow, because he was obviously sitting in the office one day and decided to write this one out on a piece of company paper. So uh, yes, so uh, here we go. This is the banana bread recipe. (coughs) Ingredients. We haven't got any miners in here this evening, have we? No, good, all right, here we go. (laughs) Ingredients. Two laughing eyes, two well-shaped legs, two loving arms, and two firm milk containers. (laughs) One fur-lined mixing bowl, and one firm banana. Yeah, you know where this is going, don't you? <laughs> Method. Look into loving eyes while slowly spreading well-shaped legs. With loving arms, gently, uh, gently squeeze and massage firm milk containers. Continue gently until fur-lined mixing bowl is well-greased. <laughs> Add firm banana and gently work into the mixing bowl until well-creamed. Sorry. (laughs) Cover with nuts. (laughs) Sigh until well received. Bread is done when banana is soft. Be sure to wash all utensils. Don't lick the bowl. (laughs) And if the bread starts to rise, leave town. Thank you, thank you. Um, now, aside from his motoring uh, career and talents, and his, uh, his uh, talent at writing poetry, uh, he was also a great musician. Um, uh, recently been going through a lot of his old scrapbooks and have come across quite a few other bits of verse, um, which is not exactly what we'd call PC in today's uh, modern world. Um, but he did write quite a few uh, limericks and poems. Uh, one that springs to mind, which I'm not going to repeat all the way through, starts off, I'm big tootsie, mighty in black, steal boss's car and never come back. Yeah, I'm going to stop right there. (laughs) Okay. So, um... (laughs) <laughs> you'll actually be able to see that later on in the year. We're bringing out a new scrapbook, uh, which contains all of Dad's uh, contracts, uh, um, various bits of verse, <clears throat> uh, and all sorts of other bits and pieces from his personal diaries and scrapbooks. Uh, and that will be coming out later on in the year, so you'll be able to see uh, a lot of those uh, funny little ditties later on in the year. But um, uh, what I'd like to do for you now is just literally um, skim over the, um, the stats, uh, because... I don't want to bore you all to sleep. So, um, on two wheels, I'll start with that. Um, The British Championships, including the ACU Road Racing Stars, uh, he won 11 times. Uh, The 125s, he won in 1958, 59 and 60. The 250s, he won in 58, 59, 60, 61. The 350, 58, 59. And the 500 in 58 and 59 again. Uh, Grand Prix World Championships, a total of nine world titles, uh, 76 races. The 125, he won two races. Uh, But in the 250, he won that championship in 61, 66 and 67, a total of 22 races. The 350cc class, he won in 66 and 67, 16 races. And the 500s, he won in 62, 3, 4 and 5, a total of 37 uh, race wins. But then, of course, there was the Island Man, which is what probably he was the most famous for, at the TT. Uh, So, uh, on the 125s in the island, he won that in 1962. Uh, The lightweight 250s, he won in uh, 1962, 66 and 67. Uh, The junior, he won in 62, 67. And this is my favourite. The senior, he won in 61, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7 and 9. But you're probably wondering, hang on a minute, you're missing something out there. Well, 78 was the TT Formula One World Championship, and uh, yes, that was his, uh, another one of his world titles, which was, of course, the, um, the famous 78 comeback. Um, so um, just in amongst those stats that I've given you there, uh, he had an approximately 76 lap records. But uh, I will jump back to stats a little bit later on, because there's um, uh, something that I came across which I found quite intriguing. And... Um, Although, as we we think of the first three TTs being won in uh, 1960, I've actually got something a lot earlier than that to show you. So we'll get back to that in a minute. But he also raced uh, four wheels too. Formula 1, Formula 2, Formula 5000, uh, a lot of sports car races too. Um, In the Formula 1 world, uh, he raced for seven seasons. He entered into about 50 Grand Prix. Uh, He had one fastest lap. Uh, 27 finishes, he managed to score 10 points in the Formula 1, and managed to get uh, onto the podium at least a couple of times. So um, he had quite, um, quite a good little run in the Formula 1, but not as good as the Formula 2, which, of course, he won in 1972, up against the likes of um, Jody Schechter, Niki Lauda, and, and the likes. So um, I'll, uh, I'll stop with the stats there, because that's pretty much all of the main ones. Um, and uh, I'd like to tell you about Mike. But before I can really tell you about Mike, what I really need to do is give you a little bit of background. I need to tell you a little bit about Stan. So uh, So here's a few photos from home of Mike as a young lad, uh, growing up, travelling all over the... (laughs) Wiry little sprog, wasn't he? Um, uh, So yeah, it's just to give you a bit of an idea of his his background. But let me tell you a little bit about Stan. Uh, Stan the man, or Stan the wallet, as a lot of people used to know him. Uh, He was a man who achieved... Probably more than most mortals, just through sheer determination. And that started from a very, very early age. He was born in 1903 to George Arthur Halewood, who was a uh, miner who lived near Salford. Uh, When he was very young, Stan had a bit of an accident, and he fell over in the house and landed on a knitting needle, which went through his knee. Unfortunately, I don't think the uh, the, um, medical facilities at the local hospital were all that good, because I think they had to re-break his knee uh, about four times and reset it before uh, uh, it actually healed. So he spent many years in hospital, and he wound up actually schooling himself from his hospital bed. But um, at the age of uh, 13, um, he went to work at um, at 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 the Foden Wagon Works. Uh, and just a couple of years after that, he left and went to work for a motorcycle repairer. But it was only a couple of years after that he decided that um, uh, he wanted to make something more of his life and he wanted, uh, he wanted to make some money. So he left Salford and he walked with his dodgy knee uh, down to Oxford, to Kings of Oxford. And he went up to the manager there and he said, will you give me a job? Uh, Naturally, the guy was a a little reluctant to um, employ a disabled guy, but uh, Stan jumped up in the truck, picked one of the bikes out, plonked it down, proved that he could do a job just as good as anybody else, and so he got the job. But he insisted on working on commission only. So um, he started off uh, buying the second-hand bikes, repairing them, selling them on before he could get hold of uh, newer, more expensive machinery, and slowly worked his way up through Kings of Oxford to become the MD and uh, later to become probably one of the most powerful men in, in the motorcycle industry. But uh, Stan also liked to race, and he dabbled in sidecars, he did a bit of sidecar racing, he did a bit of grass track racing as well, and uh, on occasion he, uh, he got in one of his cars and, and had a bit of a race in one of his cars too. Um, for those of you that have been up and having a look, you're probably wondering, this looks a little bit old to be Mike's. Well, this is actually out of Stan's car, so uh, I don't know what the car was, that's probably one of the only bits of memorabilia I've still got left of Stan's racing history. So uh, not exactly what we call lightweight in today's, uh, today's standards, but still a lovely piece to have. So um, Stan was married twice, um, and uh, his first wife bore him three children. Uh, a first, uh, a son who unfortunately died, um, a daughter called Christine, my Auntie Chris, and on the, uh, on the 2nd of April, 1940, uh, Stanley Michael William Bailey Halewood. Now, obviously, as you can see, he got to grow up in a very privileged background, and at a fairly early age, Stan was able to provide him uh, with a motorcycle. It was a. Spe- <laughs> I hope he hasn't just thrown him out of that. Um, uh, a rather sort of special little half pint-sized bike, uh, which you'll see cycling through on the photos in a minute, and. Um, Mike started to ride the bike around the garden and um, he started riding it a bit faster and a bit faster and a bit faster and eventually Stan got the stopwatch out and started timing him from the living room window, just doing laps around the lawn. It got to the point where he gave the stopwatch to the gardener so that when he wasn't there, the gardener could time him, make sure he was keeping his times up. And pretty much realised that, yeah, we've got a motorcycle genius on our hands here and um, uh, Stan... (laughs) <laughs> I think the milk was off. Uh, Stan tried um, uh, and uh, used his knowledge of the motorcycle industry and promotion to um, to help Dad along in his career. Uh, in 1954, he went to Pangbourne Naval College. We saw him there in his uniform a moment ago. Uh, but unfortunately, he wasn't really that interested in schoolwork. Um, and in order to sort of cure the boredom, took a motorcycle with him to school and kept it chained to a tree in the woods just outside Pangbourne. And on the weekends, he and his mates would unchain the bike, and they'd go rip-roaring through the woods on it. But uh, in, 19, in 1957, his lack of interest caused him to leave school early, and he went to work for Stan at Kings of Oxford. I think he must have got under Stan's feet a little bit, because it was only shortly after that that Stan packed him up off and sent him off to work at the um, Triumph factory uh, at Meriden near Birmingham which is where he learned his mechanics. And like me, his, his favourite tool was a hammer. Um, if you couldn't find, a, couldn't find a hammer that worked, you'd find a bigger hammer that worked. Um, but uh, that was pretty much where it all started. Uh, the guys there um, pushed him into doing his first event, which was, of course, the Scottish six-day trial. And um, uh, he did that on a little triumph. But a week after that, on the 2nd of April, he actually entered into his very first race which was at Alton Park. Um, Now Stan managed to borrow an MV, and um, Dad came in 11th in the field. Coincidentally, the same place that I got in my very first race. Only difference was I ran off the track three times. (coughs) But um, uh, he actually took his his very first victory on that little 250 MV at, uh, at Cookstown and uh, he had quite a, quite a, success, uh, quite a successful um, first season. But when the season came to an end, uh, Stan obviously wanted to keep the pressure on, and uh, a good place to go riding for the winter was South Africa, so they upped sticks and cleared off to South Africa for winter testing. Uh, he raced bikes, bought and borrowed from his race winnings that year, and uh, Stan, while they were down there, managed to borrow a little NSU from Mr Jack Surtees. And um, Dad, in fact, enjoyed riding the bike so much that uh, uh, Stan never gave it back to him. Uh, And I believe the story goes that he didn't even pay for it either. So... But he did later on go on to buy another five NSUs from Jack. And um, uh, they are uh, a few of them. I know of three of them are dotted all over the world and still running. I got to ride one, oh, about mm, 10 or 11 years ago. And, yeah, it was horrible. (laughs) But uh, he, I I say, I I, I think it's horrible. I'm used to riding modern bikes. But Dad loved it. In fact, he loved it so much. And he had so many uh, wins on it in South Africa during that season, uh, he wanted to bring it back with him straight away back to the UK, ready for 58. But because they couldn't get the bike on the plane, so he dropped the engine out of the bike, and he brought the engine with him. And as soon as he got back to the UK, they put the, uh, the engine back into another bike, and uh, off he went. He entered into his first TT races, uh, sorry, 1958. Entered into his first TT races, all four classes, and uh, his best result was on that little 250 NSU, which he got a third. Um, uh, his other positions that he finished in that year, uh, were seventh, twelfth and thirteenth places, but of course he also was riding the, the British national events as well at the same time, again in all classes. Uh, and in the British Nationals that year, in 58, he managed to stack up an amazing 47 race wins. Uh, he rode a 125 Payton, the 250 NSU, of course, uh, and the 350 Norton, uh, winning the championship. Not just, on different, uh, not just in different classes, but on different bikes from different manufacturers. It was a, it was a real measure of his talent. But uh, 1959, uh, he'd become British champion again taking the 125 class on the Ducati, the 250 on the Mondial, and the 350 and 500 on the Nortons. Uh, he won his first GP event at Northern Ireland, uh, the 125 GP at Dunrod, uh, on the Little Ducati. And that year, he finished third in the 125 championship, just behind uh, Ubiali and Pravini, uh, who were both multiple world champions at the time. Um, and he also rode against them in the 250 class in the Isle of Man. Um, but the bike that dad was riding at the time, was eight years old, and he was actually leading the two Italians on their factory MVs uh, until about 50 yards from, from the finish line when his ignition failed, and uh, they, they they just beat him. Uh, Stan actually thought that the two Italians had been playing with him and sort of letting him win, uh, but no, apparently not. <laughs> so uh, 1960 uh, was probably the, uh, the year of uh, the first of what I like to call his, his life highlights. Um, it was the year of the first 100 mile an hour uh, average lap on a single. Now Dad wasn't actually the first person to do this. Uh, it was Derek Minter. And uh, in the morning Derek went out and he posted the time. But uh, Dad, having seen that on his pit board, uh, wasn't too keen on that. So he wound up his Norton and he went out and he beat Derek's time. Uh, later that afternoon... Derek went out and beat Dad's time again, and shortly after that, Dad went out and beat Derek's time again. And uh, I believe that the, the final time was something like 100 and, uh, what was it 107.8 or something like that at, at, at the end. There was, there was hundreds in it at the time. Um, but uh, despite a busy, uh, a busy year and many race wins uh, that year, it would be his first opportunity to um, drive his Lotus Climax car. Not that one, (laughs) Um, which he really seemed to enjoy. Um, Although he didn't have very much success with the car that year, uh, he did enjoy it and um, wasn't going to let it go. But uh, Stan had been working behind the scenes and um, had managed to produce an amazing opportunity for 1961. When they went to the island, um, this was the year that pretty much Mike the Bike Really, sort of took hold, and uh, and the legend started. Stan borrowed a one-two-five Honda uh, for him to uh, to enter into the t- uh, the one-two-five TT, and on the first two laps, he broke the lap record twice, chasing down Luigi Taveri. Um, uh, he took Luigi on the final lap. Luigi retook him and broke the lap record himself, um, but Dad still got him back and still went on to win by eleven seconds. Later on that day, he took the 250 race on another Honda. And uh, it's just sort of worth remembering, a little bit of math here. Uh, the 125 was run, what, over three laps of the mountain course. Uh, public roads, manhole covers, dry stone walls, you know what it's like. Um, it's what, about 113 miles. And then in the 250 race in the afternoon, uh, five laps of the same course. So around about 302 miles. Um, on di- two different bikes within a couple of hours. I would love to see Marquez jump on and do that. I have to kick Mr. Espaletta really, really hard to get him to do that. But uh, yeah, well, I'll keep kicking him until he says yes. <laughs> uh, in the 350cc uh, class in that, rate, uh, that year, he had a, a two-minute lead with about 13 miles to go. Um, but unfortunately, part of his piston broke and uh, left him stranded at the side of the road, and our dear friend Mr. Reid uh, sailed past to take the victory in that one. But the 500cc uh, the uh, race was another matter. He was on the Norton, uh, Gary Hocking was on the MV, and uh, everyone reckoned that Dad's uh, Norton was about 10 mile an hour down on Gary's, M- uh, on Gary's MV. But Dad stuck with him all the way, and he kept pushing, 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 and he pressured him into a mistake, and Gary actually wound up running up uh, one of the slip roads and um, uh, Dad managed to take the lead and, uh, uh, and went on to win. Going through the old scrapbooks, I came across a list compiled by Stan. There it is. Compiled by Stan and it's a very comprehensive list. Uh, I'll read it out to you because it's a little faded. Um, uh, summary 58 and Summary 59. Uh, 58 including South Africa but not including heats. 60 firsts, 15 seconds, five-thirds, 38 new lap or race records. In 59, uh, 94 starts in the British Isles. Uh, 57 firsts, plus 6 in South Africa, uh, 15 seconds, plus 3 in South Africa, 9 thirds, and 46 lap and or race records, plus 6 in South Africa, holds lap or race records at every short circuit track where he's ridden, including Silverstone, Mallory, Brands, Snetterton, Thruxton, Castlecombe, Aberdeer, Aintree, Scarborough, Alton Park, Cadwell, Figon <laughs> Crystal Palace. Now, Not wanting to brag or anything, but um, the list goes on and on, and on and on and on and on and on and on and on, and hopefully I'll come back to the beginning of it in a minute. In a minute, in a minute. Oh, there we go. Right, excellent stuff. <laughs> so um, yeah, so we were talking about um, uh, the three, the three wins. This is the bit I wanted to show you. Let me just zoom in here and scroll down a little. He says, "Here we go." During the season, Mike has performed seven hat tricks, i.e. winning three or more races in one day. At Snet Road Races on the 15th of June, he won all four races, entered 125, 250, 350, 500, raising the lap record uh, during every race, and was the first rider to lap this track at 90 mile an hour. At Silverstone on the 5th of July, he put up the same remarkable performance, winning the 125, 250, 350, 500 classes, and setting uh, setting up a new lap record during each race. what we think we know about his racing career is is a mere drop in the ocean <laughs> i'm still learning about his um uh his amazing tally it, it still blows me away but uh getting back on track sorry um yeah so 1960 um uh he took the uh, the 250 dutch tt at assen um uh, what else? Uh, yeah, the East German um, GP at Saxon Ring, Swedish TT at uh and gained him his first world title. Um, but uh, as I said, Mike's, uh, Dad's Norton was regularly finishing second to Gary because Gary's, uh, Gary's MV was, was that much faster. And with about three races to go left in that season, uh, Count Augusta from MV offered Dad the works 500 and 350 bikes for the last couple of races. Now, although it was said to be impossible to jump from a Norton straight onto a a multi-cylinder bike, uh, Dad went off and um, uh, he took the bike and won at Monza and came second at Sweden with it on those last two races. And even only having ridden the bike twice, he actually still finished second in the World Championship. So uh, Count Augusta invited him to join the team for the 62 season Uh, which unfortunately uh, didn't please Gary Hocking very much. And uh, shortly after seeing his good friend Tom Phyllis die in the Isle of Man, uh, he left motorcycle racing. And in fact, he died later on that year testing a a, a Formula One car. Um, So moving on, 62, in fact 62, 63 and 64, uh, he failed to win a total of only five out of the 27 500cc races held. Those five, he either didn't pitch up, because he was probably still pissed from the night before, <laughs> or the bike wouldn't run. So uh, he took the 500cc championship in, uh, in all three of those years, and uh, the second place in 63 on, on the 350. Um, but uh, also that year, uh, he had another stab at his car racing. Uh, he, ha- he paid a handsome sum of £5,000 to enter his Lotus into the British Grand Prix and qualified fifth on the, on the, on the, on the grid. Uh, he came in eighth out of about 23 starters, which was uh, pretty good. Uh, he continued to play with cars through 64 and 65, and he even won the odd sports car race as well in the, uh, in the winter off-season. But um, he was never as comfortable in the Formula One paddock as he was in the, in the bike paddock. And uh, in his own words, Well, I'm always glad to get back to a motorcycle meeting after the car racing because I find that the motorcycle gang are much more friendly, and the atmosphere is much nicer, you know? And motorcycle racing is still much more of a sport than car racing. No disrespect to any car people, I love the car. I love the cars, I watch the Formula One every weekend. Um, but he uh, yeah, had different thoughts. So in February 64, Stan, uh, with the help of Stan, or should I say being pushed by Stan, uh, Dad wrote himself into the record books again. Stan wanted to try for the hour record and realized that the only place to do it was at Daytona in in the States. But the only time that that they could do it was uh, in the morning, um, before the practice of the the American Grand Prix. So just using the practice bike and on normal tires, he went out and averaged 144.8 mile an hour, breaking the previous record by about two mile an hour. Later on that afternoon, he also went on and won the, the American GP as well. He really loved to rub it in, didn't he? (laughs) 1965 would be uh, Dad's last year with MV. Uh, Once again, he took the 500cc championship, becoming the first rider to take four in a row. Uh, I'd just like to point out at this moment, only just been equalled by Marquez last year. (laughs) Um, But... um, Uh, Despite Dad's success on the MV, um, as any boss would want, Count Augusta, what he really wanted was an Italian, on an Italian bike, winning the flagship uh, uh, race, which is called the 500cc. So uh, it became pretty apparent to Dad that um, Giacomo, who was uh, Dad's understudy, Giacomo Agostini at the time, um, started to get much better machines. Dad started getting inferior parts, inferior machines, and... um, uh, I still have the contract at home. Dad had a word with uh, with account and uh, took the contract and went whoosh, whoosh. And in the scrapbook, which I told you about earlier on, that's coming out later on in the year, you'll see that contract in four pieces there in the book. So um, uh, yes, they, they parted their ways, um, uh, but to, de- uh, 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 to the benefit of, of Dad, because he left MV and wound up going to Honda Jim Redman had already been riding for Honda and had been riding the 500cc bike, uh, just like the one we have downstairs. And uh, when Dad, uh, when Dad uh, joined Honda uh, in 66, um, it was to be that Dad was going to ride the, um, uh, the 500 class and Jim would do the 250 and, three, uh, the 250 and 350s. But uh, Jim had other ideas. Jim wanted to concentrate on the 500 and leave the smaller uh, smaller classes to dad. So that's what he did. And, um, uh, oh, sorry, I lost my spot there. Um, Yes, sorry, yeah. Uh, halfway through the season, Jim had a, had a, uh, a shunt in Belgium. Uh, unfortunately, he wouldn't race the 500 again. Um, so basically, that gave Dad uh, free reign to run the 250, 350 and 500cc uh, machines. And um, uh, he took the 250 and the 350 title and came in just behind Giacomo in the 500 class. But uh, 1967 saw a, a repeat of the same. He won the 350 uh, class by some four points and the 250cc title having won more races. Um, But he was even with Giacomo on points and wins in the 500 class. And unfortunately lost out on aggregate time over the whole season. So uh, that was a bit of a shame on that one. But it was another one for Giacomo. It all added to to their amazing amazing history and the battles that they had. But um, Dad's uh, unique riding style Um, started to become apparent to people. Um, He'd get the bike over at much greater angles than anybody else would. And um, uh, although um, a lot of people at the time were leaning off the bikes, Dad never did. He kept himself very tucked in. He'd find the tarmac with his toe, tip it in. And a lot of people would, uh, would comment on the state of his boots after he'd come back in from a race. Now some of you probably uh, have come and had a little look, Uh, I don't know where these were raced or worn, or worn away, should I say. Uh, Just a pair of nondescript boots, but uh, that was a a very mild bit of wear. It was a good day's work, but a mild bit of wear. Uh, At home I have the 78 comeback boots, and literally you can put your whole fist in the boot from the wrong end. It's that wide, it really is a big hole in that boot. <laughs> um, so uh, yeah, he, he, um, uh, he would often draw blood from his feet and people would always say to him, you know, oof, oof. but that was how he did it, that was his style, and um, he, he never seemed to change it. Even when he did his comeback, uh, still all very tucked in, all very sleek and slender. But um, one thing that uh, he did whilst riding the Honda, which had a lot of the mechanics scratching their heads, was uh, uh, specifically on the 500. He would come out of the corners and the mechanics would hear the the engine winding up and couldn't figure out what it was. And um, after 67, sorry, I'm just jumping a little bit here. After 67, uh, they took the tyre from the back of the bike. They took it back to Japan and analysed it. And they reckoned that he actually had that bike over at 59 degrees. On those old pear-shaped tires. Now, if you think about the guys today, 61, 62, they max out. 63, you're off. All right, maybe not Marquez because he picks it up on the elbow. But 62 degrees today, and that's it. That's your lot. And that's with all the modern tire technology that we have. Dad did that on those horrible pear-shaped tires. Oh, and probably only about so wide. The tires that are on the one downstairs, that's modern rubber and huh. I thank God for modern rubber, because I couldn't have done it on the pear-shaped tyres. But uh, yes, um, the uh, the 250 machines that we were sort of that the Brits were used to at the time. 250 bikes had two cylinders. 125 bike had what one? Honda came over in '66 with a 250 that had six cylinders on it. A 125 that had, I love that picture. Sorry. <laughs> a 125 that had five cylinders on it. It was amazing. Their engine technology was absolutely phenomenal. Sadly, their frame-building technology wasn't up to speed with the engine uh, technology. And um, uh, some of the frames that were produced were lacking, shall we say. (laughs) Most of the large bikes were based on um, the original Featherbed Norton, which, of course, was a single-cylinder bike. Um, But for riders like Dad, who used to spin up the rear wheel, uh, a rigid frame... um, uh, a rigid frame uh, was very important, so you know, because it could it, it could take the power. But uh, the Honda in 1966 was pretty much unrideable. About 8,000 revs, uh, it would bend in the middle, uh, and even if you were going down in a straight line, the back end still wanted to overtake the front end. So uh, during '66, they kept working on the bike, and in '67, they uh, had increased the power for the bike, but uh, had left the, the the frame the same. Um, now, Dad went and tested the bike, uh, Mr. Honda was there, um, and in order to try and resolve some of the problems, I understand from various people that, um, because he didn't speak Japanese, all he could do was show him physically. So he got his spanner out, and he took the shocks off the back of the Honda, and staring at Mr. Honda's face went, in the bin because it was the only way he could explain to him what he thought of the rear shocks that were on it. So they went in the round filing cabinet, and someone went to Gerling and managed to get some, some rear shocks. Um, and they put those in, which is what we run it on today. Um, then uh, he also spoke with a Mr. Sprayson, Ken, uh, an amazing uh, frame builder at the time, and Ken managed to build a new frame, which is what we've got it in at the moment and uh, uh, reduced the amount of twist from around about 8,000 revs to about 9,500 revs. So uh, now I run it on 10,500 revs. I can deal with about 1,000 revs worth of twist, and <laughs> that's my lot. But uh, as you'll see in a, a little bit later on, my riding skills are not as good as Dad's. So um, when, they, uh, when they eventually got that engine into that frame, uh, and started racing it. Um, it soon earned its nickname, the Camel or the Bronco, as Dad used to used to call it. And in fact, uh, uh, John Cooper said that uh, Dad deserved the uh, Vic- uh, what was it, the, the Victoria Cross, if he rode it at the TT. And of course, he did in '66 and '67. Uh, one of my one of my all-time favourite photos um, is this one here of Dad at the bottom of Bray Hill on the 500 at the, um, in the '67 race. Uh, Now this is a painting of a photograph but you can see both tyres all flattened out, suspension at maximum compression and the tyres rubbing right up underneath the subframe there. If you go and have a look at the bike downstairs, you'll see the distance between it and you'll realise that he's he's not sitting on the bike, he's standing on it and the whole thing is just bucking like that. And I've ridden it plenty of times, she does that a lot. All you've got to do is just close your eyes and hope you make it out the other side. (laughs) <laughs> but um, uh, 67 was probably one of the most memorable races um, uh, because it was the, uh, the big battle between Dad and Giacomo, Giacomo obviously on the MV uh, and Dad on the Honda. Uh, it was Giacomo's 21st birthday uh, and unfortunately in the closing stages of the race uh, Giacomo's chain snapped and um, uh, Dad managed to take the victory. Not how he would have liked to have won And, um, in fact, he tried to make it up to Giacomo and took him out for the evening. And I remember distinctly Giacomo saying, it's okay because I have a beautiful night with a very nice lady. It's all okay. So, um, it couldn't have have been all bad. (laughs) But um, through 67, uh, they were working, obviously, towards... Uh, the next season, 68, uh, Dad had had a new frame built. Honda had, uh, <laughs> uh, Honda had been working on a new engine. But uh, when 67 came to a close, uh, Honda actually pulled out of racing altogether. And um, uh, Dad um, got a chance to go and play with some more of his cars. But uh, before he left, uh, he was paid uh, the princely sum of £50,000 and given a set of four machines and spares and was told to uh, not go racing at any more international meetings. He could go and race the uh, club meetings and and non-international things, uh, which he did, and in fact wound up pitching the the Honda up against Giacomo's Giacomo's, uh, MV, but um, uh, Honda shortly put pay to that and stopped him from doing it. So um, uh, he could only get to go and ride it at uh, at sort of smaller races. But um, I'd say uh, in 58, uh, sorry, ah. in 68, uh, he got back into his cars again. Uh, Formula 5000s, which he raced with uh, uh, Rod Sawyer, who was my godfather. Um, he managed to get a third place in the 1969 Le Mans 24-hour with my namesake, uh, David Hobbs. Um, and in fact, they did uh, lead that race for a little while until the crew misdiagnosed a brake problem. But... Uh, Moving on a little, um, Dad later on went to join uh, John Surtees and in 1971 uh, racing the uh, Formula 5000 um, he uh, qualified 17th on the grid at Monza uh, and actually lined up directly behind John. Um, But the nature of the circuit meant that it became a a battle of slipstreaming cars and uh, every lap the lead changed many, many times. Uh, by, the, uh, by the end of the race, lap sort of 25, Dad was actually leading, uh, and through the final corner there were four cars still in with a chance, but unfortunately he missed out by a tenth of a second, uh, and, um, and less than two tenths of a way from winning it. He just got pipped into the last corner, so a um, oh, bit of a shame there. But uh, yeah, he drove Formula 1 and the Formula 2 series for 1972, and uh, future F1, uh, stars, the likes of uh, James Hunt, Nicky Lauda, Jody Schechter, they all competed in the Formula 2 series as well in Europe. But uh, that was the one that Dad took. And uh, that's the one I like to call his 10th world, world Championship. It's his only car world championship. And uh, of course, yeah, that was the uh, Formula 2 series, uh, the European Formula 2 series in 1972. 72, um, his Formula 1 season wasn't so good. Um, uh, his suspension broke in South Africa while he was challenging Jackie Stewart for the lead um, he did score a few, uh, few points with a Surtees car and he did get to visit the podium a few times he got a second at Monza uh, a race which uh, Emerson Fittipaldi actually won um, but in 1973 uh, he went racing again in the cars for Surtees but uh, something would happen in 1973 that would change his and uh one of his good friends lives uh forever formula one he was racing against a lot of people uh
1: including one of the top people a chap called clay Regasani, an italian and uh there was a collision and i saw it because it was a Crowthorn at the end of the street in clay's car colliding and caught fire and Mike got out of his own car because he'd gone off the road as well. Regazzoni was in in the car, on fire, uh, in in danger of losing his life, uh, and without a moment's hesitation, Mike is out of the car and dragged clear Regazzoni out of the car and burns himself badly in the process. But, I mean, the bloody thing was on fire. There's no doubt about it, and you know he. he he got to have some guts to do that. Mike would not think twice about doing that. Um, and now, whether you call that full or bravery, um, I don't know. It's instinct, really, I suppose. He couldn't let fire marshals deal with it or marshals deal with it. He didn't think about it himself, he just went and did it. Undoubtedly, Say, Riggles own his life. Mike uh, one, won the George Medal, which is a civil and civilian equivalent of the Victoria Cross. I don't know what else you can get to be recognised for such bravery and such determination and such care. But, uh, I got out of my car looked across cross and was unconscious in the car. So I went over and handed uh, his seatbelts, trying to pull him out. And uh, I couldn't get him out because his legs were trapped ch- by the, the car, which was squashed yeah. up. And then my clothing caught fire because the petrol was leaking out of his tank. And I went away. And they got the fire out. And he was still sitting in there, unconscious. And then the fire went off again. So I went back in again and helped pull him out with the help of a marshal. When he got back to the pits where his wife Pauline was, he said, We're out of here, let's go. And it wasn't until subsequently she found out in some other way, either through radio or television or someone telling her, that Mike had just put his own life at risk, saving the life of like a fellow competitor. He would have never have told her. That's a symbol of a brave man, of a great man. I mean, for me, it just. That's a typical Mario. It wasn't worth talking about. It. And he was just finding himself, finding his feet in Formula One when he had the big bad crash at the Nurburgring, which finished his career.
0: that was of course how he uh, how he got his uh, his George medal says Mike Hailwood a token of our appreciation from BRM for your courageous selfless intervention in the multiple crash during the 73 South African Grand Prix an act that unquestionably saved the life of Clay Regazzoni our grateful and sincere thanks that's a lovely piece i cherish that one that's a really really nice piece now you know today how you know Marquez or Rossi or whoever goes out and they win the World Championship. and Before they even get back into, uh, into Park Ferme, there's someone out there on the circuit who's got their, I'm a world champion, number one, shirt on, and they're all ready to go. It's all prepara- preparation, isn't it? But well, it was a little bit different in those days, and, and, and it was a little bit different in situations like that. So, uh, so uh, what can we do? What can we give him for, for being so brave? What, you know, I don't know, mate. Here, hand me that black magic marker. We'll scribble his name down on that. There you go, for bravery at the 73 Kyler Army race. <laughs> I'll leave that out there, you can have a look at that later on. But, um, um, as, uh, as Ted said uh, just there in the closing part, um, uh, it wasn't long after that that he actually uh, had a bit of a nasty shunt, and um, uh, it ended his car-, uh, his car racing career. And you saw the, um, uh, the x-ray there. Uh, well, unfortunately, uh, while they were in Germany, they, um, uh, he took off from uh, a jump called the Garden jump. The car landed a little bit uh, uh, sideways. And um, uh, which one was it? Sorry, that's Rega's car there. Uh, his car landed a little bit sideways, and yeah, he, he did pretty much what Rega did, and um, slid down the hill and put the front of the car into the armco, and unfortunately uh, did his legs quite a bit of damage. Uh, I'll leave these up here. You're more than welcome to come and have a little look at those, if I can get them the right way around. Uh, there's that one there. Oh, that's a bit hard to see. The left and right there. Bang, bang. And uh, a few nice bolts through there, and uh, as the, you saw on the, uh, on the clip there, our trigger-happy staple gun-wielding surgeon <laughs> there. So, um, but uh, what he also did was uh, smash his car into quite a few pieces. Now most steering wheels don't really come like that. But he had a sense of humour about it, because do excuse my language. He just wrote on it, "Fucked by Mike, 28th of the 7th, 7, 73." <laughs> there we go. Ah, <laughs> oh, dear. Uh, I'm going to play you this one. This is a few uh, unpublished um, photos from uh, from home. Uh, <laughs> yeah, 73. Wow. Uh, now, so moving on, 74. Uh, Dad was still driving for, for, for John Surtees at the time. Um, but in 74, they managed to uh, get a sponsor. Uh, Bang & Olufsen were the sponsor. But uh, being a German company, they naturally demanded a German be put in the car, so Jochen Mass was installed, and uh, Dad lost his drive but I believe it was on the same day that he lost his drive, he had a, uh, a telephone call from McLaren and was asked to uh, to go and drive for them. So he was well chuffed with that, and uh, he started the season uh, with some very good finishes, including a, a third place in South Africa, but um, uh, as I said a moment ago, um, his season flattened out when they got to Germany. Uh, he hit the Flans Garden, took off, came down, squirreled off, and um, and as I say, um, uh, smashed his legs up. Um, That particular race, do you know who won that race? Anybody? Clay (laughs) Regazzoni. So in 1975, after that nasty old shunt, Dad retired, and uh, we moved down to New Zealand. But it wasn't long before he started getting itchy feet, and, uh, sorry, I'm going to play with this again. Uh, It wasn't long before he started getting itchy feet and wanting something to do, so... Um, there was a gentleman uh, by the name of Mr. Peter Starr, who was a film director, and at the time, Peter was living uh, in America, and he was doing a film about motor... Sorry. Motorcycling in general. Oh, sorry about that. Where is it? There we go. Sorry, just finished this little bit here. And... um, He was filming motorcycle in general. Now, that sort of encompassed AMA, dirt racing, desert racing, hill climbs, you name it. Um, But of course, any motor racing movie wouldn't be complete without a good bit of road racing. So uh, he contacted Dad, and uh, uh, they put this together. Now, this was done in 1977. Uh, the machine that it was used was a uh, TZ 750, which was uh, borrowed from Paget's motorcycles. In fact, Clive Paget still has the machine and loans it to me on a on a on a regular basis. And um, the bike, at the time that Dad rode it in '77, this bike was actually already seven years old. So I'm going to play you this clip, which I started to play a minute ago, and uh, we'll see if we can get it right this time. me <laughs> just skip this bit on because you saw that bit. Here we go.
1: 12 times. His name is Mike Cable. For the purposes of this film, Abley agreed to come out of retirement and ride the course one more time. To me, the of man is the
0: greatest road race in the world. It's the ultimate challenge to uh, both riders and machinery. It's the most difficult and to learn and to do it
1: properly. A sense of history is everywhere on the Isle of Man. Its heart is the oldest sandy never on Earth, currently celebrating its 1,000th anniversary. Ancient Gaelic names like Crunky Lone, Bob Rain, and Craig are constant reminders of the enormous age of the island society. And the contrast of its past with modern when a 160-mile-per-hour motorcycle tears through streets that are normally reserved for horse-drawn trains. Well, I don't think that uh, any rider can consider himself a road racing world champion unless he's actually ridden in the Isle of Man. In recent years, the Isle of Man has been severely criticized by several professional racers as being too dangerous a circuit. Many riders have lost their lives here. The course is lined with telegraph poles, curb stones, traffic islands, and stone walls. Obstacles not found on Grand Prix race courses anywhere. The weather conditions are so unpredictable, riders can face rain, sun, and fog all in one afternoon. spend weeks in preparation, learning every nuance of the 37 and 3 quarter mile course. There are so many peculiarities on this track, anything short of complete concentration could bring about devastating results. Well, to be quite honest with you, I I never really knew it properly. I don't think anybody could possibly say that they knew it fully, but uh, it took me about two years to get to know it as well as I was ever going to get to know it. The 2,000-foot climb to the top of Mount Snaefell begins at the east coast town of Ramsey. Approaching the cloud-covered summit, Halewood's visibility will be practically zero. This is road racing.
0: Okay, that's that's just that's the end of that little clip there. So, uh, I hasten to add that, uh, yeah, that was just practice. (laughs) Now, what a lot of people uh, uh, didn't know was, um, uh, while he was doing that, uh, he was actually there that year acting as a travelling marshal. (laughs) Travelling marshal. And what he was doing was going out and completing certain sections of the course at full race pace. And then for the rest of the lap, he'd just back it off and tootle around. The next lap, he'd complete the next section at race pace and back it off, and so on, and so on, and so on. And after spending a week there practicing in '77, um, he collated all his times at the end of the week and, and um, came to the conclusion that, you know what, I probably can do that. Here we go. Historically, the most dangerous
1: of all. Here we go. It was too much of a chance, too much Here we of a gamble. Go. Uh, I really just didn't want to be close to him, I just had a terrible bloody Morgan fear of him falling off mm. and hurt himself. I was asked by so many people why didn't I run right again in the Iron Man and everything. to have another go I thought well why not, so we got things ready and uh, there we are. i went over there to watch it <laughs> it was like being in the rolling stones the you've been lying and he said too right i am too right i am <laughs> sort of taking intakes of breath and seeing my go You could hear it. You know, he's come back and prove that he was still doing That's what he meant. And he was right. He did a bit of show because he got past probably in the square, probably got by him again. I'd have been the most unpopular winner, TC winner ever. <laughs> And I've got to admit, I was absolutely in tears. It. It, it was so emotional. I feel emotional when they're talking about it. it. It was incredible. I mean, it can't happen. <laughs> I'm driving, it's slipping, it's sliding, it's that was a tragic, tragic moment of my life. Grown men were crying. I can get emotional just talking about it now.
0: was, without Shadow the come back ever in, in uh-huh. There we go. 78, what a win. And just to rub it in, he we thought he'd come back and do it one more time in 79, just to give us the last one. And um, what, a, what an amazing career, and what an amazing uh, tally. It's probably the reason I never started racing myself. I had a little stab at some classic racing, and uh, as I said, my first race I come in 11th, the same as Dad, but uh, uh, I have all the enthusiasm, but none of the talent. So, so we have a brave man there. Your um, department was uh, sort of talk about this, um, the 77th Yes. Yes. Well they um, they I mean they were actually pretty good pretty good mates and um, I don't think Dad had any thoughts either way as to <coughs> what Barry thought about it. Um, I don't know about that one. Yeah, you got me there, I think. I, I can answer that. <laughs> oh, go on, please. I
1: remember saying on the programme on the television, somebody said to him, what do you think about Barry
0: Sheena? And he said, Barry who? <laughs> 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 good answer, I guess. Uh, well, they were great wind-up merchants. I mean, they, they, I mean, Dad thrived on that sort of thing. I mean, on a, a lot of races, I'm sure a lot of you know this, and he'd pull up and he'd be there sort of four or six abreast across the line and, Just to upset the guy next to him, he'd just look across. Ooh. (laughs) And that would be it. And they'd go, oh, God. Leaking something or something. And uh, it would set them off. And in fact, um, Dad's best victim, of course, for that was uh, the poor, unfortunate Phil Reed. Um, One year, uh, um, Phil was at the front of the TT there, ready to go. And Dad was a couple of rows back. And Dad walked up behind Phil, and he went, "Yeah, Phil. Stay to the left, mate, because I'll be coming through on the right. <laughs> sure enough, two laps in, whoosh, nice. he had him. I think it was about two years later, the roles were reversed, and Dad was on the front, and Phil was behind, and I think Phil got to about here. And Dad just turned around and went, Phil, piss off. <laughs> Another, I can't see
1: a damn thing from here, so I don't know how you've done this, because this line is I know. question. Any other questions there, yeah, sir? This, Gentlemen here, yeah.
0: How close was your dad to Giacomo Agostini, have you got any funny stories with the relationship between the two? Yeah, I mean, they were, they were very good buddies. Um, uh, dad sort of took Giacomo under his wing. Um, Giacomo was a few years younger than Dad, and um, his English wasn't all that good at the time. And um, there's a lot of rumours going around that uh, uh, Dad and, and Phil and, and Bill and a few other guys used to teach Giacomo his English. Sure. And. Uh, <laughs> And I believe that the, the, the question had been, can you help me with my acceptance speech for, it was an award or a trophy, I forget what it was now. And rather than saying, uh, I'd like, rather than teaching him to say, I'd like to say thank you for receiving this award, he said something like, he taught him something like, you have a beautiful bottom and I think your boobies are, are absolutely gorgeous. <laughs> so, didn't go down too well, but. Uh, <laughs> Typical typical bit of uh, uh, um, tomfoolery there. Yeah, they did joke around and play a lot of pranks on each other, yeah. But very, very, very good friends. Um, and it's a little strange for me, because when I first got back into biking again after many years, and I, and I saw Giacomo for the first time since I was sprog height, it was weird, because he picked up with me, where he left off with my dad. And... Um, my friend sort of introduced me and I, I had my hand out like that and rather than sort of shake my hand he just sort of went mm, whee! and he oh. <laughs> so uh, yeah so that, that sort of silly humour uh, and, and pranking still goes on even between us so yeah it's it, it, it's good fun Redman. Sir How about, uh, your Dad and Jim, Redman? Dad and Jim. Yeah. they were actually very good friends yeah yeah um, uh, uh, obviously, on the track, I think they were a little bit more competitive than, say, Dad and Giacomo would have been. Um, uh, it really was sort of tooth and nail on the track. Whereas with Giacomo, there was quite a few instances where it was... No, 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 you go. And they play. they play for the crowd a lot of the time. And then at some point, Dad would say, right, bugger this, I'm off, and he would, and off he'd go. But uh, no, Dad and Jim were great friends, and in fact, uh, uh, one year at Kailami, I think Jim was flying in in his plane, and he had Dad with him, and they tried to land at the circuit there, and I think the wind shear was a bit much. There were some power cables very close to the landing strip, and Jim had three cracks at landing, and he couldn't do it. And Dad said, no, field, the field over there. Stick me down in the field and I'll walk back. And that's what he did. He went and dropped Dad in the field. And Jim actually went and landed the plane at the circuit in the end. But no, Dad, Dad walked in. <laughs> but yeah, they were good friends. They were good friends. And uh, I still see Jim a lot. Jim still travels around and does a lot of events. Um, but everywhere I go, I seem to see him with a different, uh, different young lady. Uh, one's his agent. One's his niece. One's his, uh, you know... <laughs> I think Auntie would be the... Auntie, yeah. yes. All I can say is he's got very good taste. <laughs> well, you'll find
1: out because he's going to be here in July. Uh, there's still some tickets available. That's a nice little lead, isn't it? Yeah,
0: yeah. Um, any other <laughs> questions? Yes, sir? Uh, Why well, not really a question, but a personal... Uh, Please. I like really going back to my early days.
1: I used to race bikes when I was younger than uh, You lived in... Uh, Mike lived in Hollyport Hale-
0: in Wainsey. Yes. Yeah. and uh, looked at the bike and you got downstairs and
1: uh, they were in the entrance hall there was a, a six on one side and a five on each floor. I was just totally in awe of being there
0: at that time, you know, Mike invited a friend of mine in for a drink, <laughs> but we just
1: didn't know, we were just internally in awe,
0: but it's a great memory I have. Ah oh, yeah, there are so many great memories and I'm sure many of you here have many Many memories of Dad. Uh, I'm in the middle of actually filming a new documentary at the moment, which will be coming out a little later on this year. Uh, I'm filming with, a, uh, with two gentlemen from um, uh, the Easy Riders TV, Steve Keyes and Danny John jules And uh, we went to interview Terry Grotefeld. Uh, and um, uh, when we went in on Terry's kitchen table, he had um, uh, 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 one of the programmes from his very first race. And as we were stood there, myself, Steve, and, and Terry, we are looking at the list. There you go. Look, there's me. Uh, oh, but yeah. Oh, but look, you're right next to B Key, Basil Keys. That was Steve Keys' grandfather. Uh, one row back, and just a couple behind, Mike, my dad. So, oh really? Yeah. So. And then the phone rings. You'll never guess who I'm here standing with. I'm standing here with Terry Gropeville. Oh, really? He had his first race with your granddad. And all of a sudden, the story, what was supposed to be the story of my dad, has veered off to Steve, Basil, uh, and Terry. But it all links back in again, because uh, Ter- um, Terry and my dad later on became, came to be very, very good friends. And in fact, in the year, uh, what was it, 1970, while Terry was out in, uh, at Daytona, uh, he had a bit of a cropper, and he smashed his helmet up and didn't have another helmet. So uh, Dad took one of his helmets, which he'd also had an accident in, and put a big hole in the side of it. He gave that to, to Terry and said, Look, I don't know if it's any good, if you can use it, use it. So Terry got some epoxy, filled it in the hole, painted it white, slapped it on his head, and off he went. Now, in 2000, I was over in the Isle of Man, and Terry knew that I was going to be there, so he spent six months taking the paint off and all the epoxy out, and he gave me the helmet back in exactly the same condition that Dad had given it to him in 1970, with the hole still in the side of it. I have that one at home. It's one of my treasured possessions. The Woolworths bag. <laughs> Excellent. Brilliant.
1: <laughs> yeah. Another maybe one more question. Or are we Yeah. What? Yes, sir. Right, I'm gonna just know. ask one question. I was sort of trying to find out because Britain thought we went back of it. Who would have come
0: maniac who went around on the back of a father's motorbike when he was going around the like, home oh, Uh I can't tell you the name of the person because I don't know, but I know that he wasn't the guy that won the competition. Oh, okay. <laughs> he pooped his pants and gave it to somebody else. <laughs> who also pooped his pants and gave it to that lunatic. <laughs> <laughs> Peter, does that answer your question? <laughs> I, I'm sorry. No way, I, I'll, I'll never know the name, unfortunately. One,
1: one fi- thank you, Peter. One final question. if there is, on, is on. one? Yes, sir, in the middle. David, in fact, Pewter history, uh, I was at the 1958 mm-hmm. Bragg's Hack Easter Meeting, which was the first meeting mm-hmm. in the uh, mm-hmm. Murrow Contest and and they with we going South Africa, coming back to race. practice that came around. And he said, if the on Sunday could his natural license hung and he said, I wonder how many people the championship. he did that Murray see there, that's how good the guy was. Wow. Do you do need to uh, reprise it. Yeah. What the gentleman was saying. uh, uh Oh, there we go. There we go. hey <laughs> Right
0: in the nose, good. What I was saying was that I was at Brown's on a good Friday meeting, the
1: first meeting of the
0: great mm. meeting of the year in 58. Mario mm. Falk was a commentator, and he filmed
1: the day out, and we are, the first vote And he had said about Mike coming back to South Africa with a I went on to say that if Mike was able to score so many points in the position in that, that place and then they'd get his national license. Yes. At uh, that point he
0: didn't have
1: a national He went on to win the British Championship that did. Yeah. It was. The <laughs> other thing I have got if I found I can't take the oh. we were in the paddock, Palace uh, uh, in 1960 C and there was Mike Stan walking up, and there was an healthy gentleman just stood on his side who was then fouled, who won the first
0: TV. And I got persuaded, Mike and Stan to stand on the other side of his the arm there, and I had that photograph, I oh, hope you're not having
1: it. <laughs> <laughs> Scan it in and thank send me a copy. Thank you. David it
0: home. Thank you, thank you very much.